You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on November 18th, 2018. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the fields not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or, Look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, what is an abomination that causes desolation? That's a, a hard thing to grapple with. There's a couple of big words there, and they don't make a whole lot of sense together. But if we break it down, an abomination is something that is particularly abhorrent to God. And desolation is to wipe things out. Imagine like a a nuclear bomb and the destruction that that causes. It just, it wipes everything out. And so an abomination that causes desolation is, is something that's abhorrent to God that wipes everything out. Daniel talks about this today. Jesus talks about this today. But what are they talking about? What does it mean? I think it's hard for us uh, to really understand uh, the the depth and the gravity of what they're talking about, this idea of an abomination that causes desolation. But it would be something that would just, it would be so abhorrent that it would make people just stop and, and think that the end of the world had come. And we don't have many experiences in our life with which we can compare to that. Um, Perhaps, and this is a minuscule example, but if you remember last year, the controversy, and I'm hesitant even to raise it, the controversy about kneeling or standing for the national anthem at football games. There was a hush that fell over our country, and people started to say, did you really just do that? And whatever side of that issue you're on, it was something that, that struck a chord in our culture because our culture doesn't really have a religion anymore. You couldn't really say that our our nation is particularly a Christian nation because there are so many different faiths expressed in our nation. And so the one thing that we still have in common is our patriotism. And so that struck a chord with so many because it it violated that sense of patriotism. It, It violated the sense of what our customs are as a nation. And that's just a tiny example of something that would happen on a much grander scale and something that would be oriented towards God that would be this kind of an abomination that causes desolation. It would, it would be something that's just so abhorrent 
that you think that God is about to bring the end of the world because nothing worse could possibly happen. So the first person that mentions this is Daniel. And Daniel was a prophet. And he was a prophet that came at a particular moment in the history of God's people. So there were lots of prophets over all the course of of that history. But Daniel came in the time of the exile, which was a time when all of God's people had been sent away from the land that God had given them because of their sin. And Daniel stood out as a special guy because God had blessed him with wisdom. And so he was actually raised up in the government of Babylon to be one of the king's advisors, one of his closest advisors. And so in the book of Daniel, we have a bunch of these stories about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who who were thrown into a fiery furnace. All these people who stood up for the Lord in the midst of persecution and, and people actually turned to the Lord because of their witness, because of them being willing to stand firm in that day. And so the whole first part of the book of Daniel is these stories that we remember uh, from maybe Sunday school or, or these, these stories about the lion's den and, and, um, and other things like that. And then the end of the book of Daniel is just a little bit different. It's, it's actually a lot different. He shifts gears and he goes into prophetic mode. And so he starts talking in poetry. He starts seeing these visions. Crazy stuff is happening. And it's hard to understand what's going on. So let's just stop and ask for a moment, what is a prophet? Daniel was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. We have lots of prophets in the Old Testament. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who hears the voice of God and is charged with speaking whatever God says to the people. And so sometimes that takes the form of a warning. Sometimes that takes the form of a rebuke. Sometimes that's in the form of an encouragement. And other times, and this is the way we think of it most often, it has something to do with predicting the future or foretelling something that is going to happen in the future. That's not actually the primary mode of what prophets do, but it is something that prophets do. From time to time, we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, prophets being told something that's going to happen in the future. And that's the case with this particular prophecy that we read from Daniel today. But here's the thing. Sometimes prophecy doesn't make sense at all until after the things that have been predicted come to pass. And if you uh, had a big question mark in your head as you were listening to these words from Daniel today, you're not alone because even Daniel was confused by them. If we read just a little bit further than what we read today, it says this. Uh, Daniel hears all these things and he turns to the Lord and it says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So even Daniel, who received this vision from the Lord, didn't know what it was all about. It wouldn't make sense until the things that had been predicted came to fulfillment. So when was this prophecy fulfilled? Well, another interesting thing about prophecy is that it doesn't always refer to one specific moment. Sometimes there are different layers of meaning on a prophecy that go to different periods of history. And that's the case with this particular prophecy. So the very first time people saw this prophecy as coming to fulfillment was in the year 167 BC. 167 BC. This was After the exile was over, the people had come back to their land. They had rebuilt the temple with Ezra, and everything was was going okay. 
and then they, they were still occupied. And so in a period of this occupation, an emperor named Antiochus IV marches into Jerusalem. He's the, the ruler because he had, he had occupied them. He marches into Jerusalem and he marches into the temple and he sets up right on top of the altar of sacrifice an altar to Zeus, the king of all the pagan gods. And on that altar to Zeus, he then goes ahead and he offers a sacrifice of pigs. And if you know anything about the Old Testament law, you know that pigs were unclean animals and that Jews were supposed to have nothing to do with pigs. They weren't supposed to eat them. They weren't even really supposed to touch them. And they certainly weren't supposed to sacrifice them in the temple. And so this was seen as the abomination of desolation. I mean, just imagine for a moment what that would be like. The temple was the one place of worship for all of the people of God. And to have a foreign king march into the temple where only Jews were supposed to go and to build an altar to a foreign god and to offer an unclean sacrifice on that altar, they must have thought lightning bolts were about to come down and start zapping people left and right. Like, seriously, abomination of desolation. They thought it was the end of everything. But it wasn't. Time moved on. Things got better. Things got worse in some cases. And a bunch of years later, in fact, about 167 years later, because this is 167 BC, Jesus is born. Jesus comes into the world. Jesus fulfills a lot of other Old Testament prophecies. And what we read in the gospel today is Jesus talking about yet another thing that is set off in the future. He talks about an abomination of desolation. And here he's playing off of those same words that Daniel used, and he's not denying that, that that abomination in 167 was an abomination of desolation, but he says there's a little bit more to this. There's another abomination of desolation that's yet to come. And so in this prophecy that Jesus makes today, he's making significant reference to Daniel, but he's also pointing to something in the future. And so hear these words of Jesus from the gospel today. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. And here, let the reader understand is in parentheses. Those are are Mark's words being inserted into Jesus' words. He's saying, it's okay. You probably aren't going to understand this, but it's okay. Just like Daniel didn't understand the prophecy when it came. But when you read a little bit more closely, what you're seeing is Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple. At the very beginning of the chapter, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. King Herod had just recently completed a rebuilding of the temple, and it was made much more glorious with more gold and more bling and more, more fancy stuff. And they're exclaiming how wonderful these things are. And Jesus says to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There will not be here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then he goes on to talk about these signs of the end of the age and this abomination of desolation. And this, in fact, came to pass in the year A.D. 70. 35 years or 37 years after Jesus died, the Romans came in because of revolts that were going on, and they again marched into the temple. And at that point, they actually did take one stone down upon another. They marched into the Holy Holies, and the entire temple was destroyed. No more temple. 
All that was left was what's now called the Temple Mount, and there's a, a mosque built on top of the Temple Mount now. The only thing left, and it's not even a, technically a part of the t- temple, it's more of a retaining wall that held up that portion of the Temple Mount, is what's now known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And it's where today uh, Jews and Christians alike will still go and pray at that, that base of the wall that held up the temple. And they stick little prayers in the cracks in there, and they pray to God, because that's the closest they can get to where that temple once stood. It hasn't been there for 2,000 years now. That, too, was an abomination of desolation. And yet, when we look at it, there's some signs, both from Daniel and from Jesus, that maybe that destruction of the temple wasn't all that was there. When we look a little bit further in the Gospel today, it says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. How many of you remember that from your history lessons? I don't remember that from my history lessons because it hasn't happened yet. And so what we're seeing is, is this prophecy originally from Daniel and extended by Jesus is looking out into the future yet again. And you can think of it kind of like if you go to the Rockies. Who's been to the Rockies? There's some big mountains there, right? If you stood on top of one of those mountains and you look out and you can see a bunch more mountains in the distance, you look at one and then your eyes focus a little bit further and then they focus a little bit further, that's kind of what we're seeing in this prophecy. It's referring to one point after another in history. And this final point that we're looking at today is the final fulfillment when Jesus will return and when this final abomination of desolation happens and Jesus will finally set all things right and he will gather his people to himself. So that's a wonderful history lesson. Thank you for coming and have a great Thanksgiving. Is that all there is? Or is there something that we can get out of this today? I think there is. This prophecy of Jesus and its fulfillment in AD 70 with the fall of the temple is yet another verification of the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. The things that Jesus said in that prophecy indeed came true just 35 years later. And if we look back into the Old Testament, as I mentioned before, there were prophecy after prophecy that pointed to this Jesus, that said that he would come, that he would be the Messiah, that he would save his people. Those prophecies didn't always make sense when they were spoken. But in Jesus, they all kind of come together and become clear. The picture, it's like those, those dots that kids draw and they have the numbers and you connect the dots and eventually you start to see a picture. And that's what happens in Jesus. He connects the dots of all those prophecies that point to him and he is the embodiment of those prophecies. It all comes true in him. And so when he says something is going to come true in the future and then it does, we see in him yet another verification that he is God that he is who he said he was, that he came to save us. And we can trust in all of his other promises, too. We, uh, earlier in the service today, sang that wonderful hymn, Be Still My Soul. And the second verse says, Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Because we have seen God guiding in the past, because we have seen God predict things through his prophets and then make them come to fulfillment, we can trust that those things that have yet still been unfulfilled will indeed come to fulfillment in the future.
And we can trust all the other promises as well. Because God always keeps his promises. It's a fact. God always keeps his promises. And so if you read it in the scriptures that God says he's going to do something, you better bet he's going to do it. He might not have done it yet, but you better bet he's going to do it because God always keeps his promises. Another important thing that we learn from this is that the destruction of the temple is a powerful symbol of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. In the old covenant, the way it worked is if you sinned, you had to bring some kind of an animal to the temple and have it slaughtered in the temple as a sacrifice to God so that God would forgive your sin. Or if you had something you were thankful for, there were thanksgiving offerings as well. You'd bring those thanksgiving offerings to the temple. Maybe it's grain. Maybe it's another animal. That animal's killed in the temple and burnt and offered to God. And that's your thanksgiving offering. And God accepts your thanksgiving offering. But when Jesus comes, he dies on the cross for our sins. He dies in place of every lamb and every cow that was ever offered in the temple. And he says those things were temporary because the the blood of bulls and goats, there's no way they can possibly take away sin. But my blood can take away sin because Jesus is God. He's the only one who can take away our sin. And so when he died on the cross as the one true sacrifice for our sin, he took away all of the sin before and after for all those who come to repentance and put their faith in him. And so the temple was no longer necessary. And just, just saying, as a priest, I'm thankful the temple is no longer necessary because our worship on Sunday would look a whole lot different and I'd, I'd be covered in red. So... Um, just saying, I'm, I'm happy about that. But I'm even happier about the fact that Jesus has taken away our sin. That the temple is no longer necessary. It's obsolete. But at the same time, just put yourself in the shoes of the people who observed the destruction of the temple. And how hard that must have been for them. Christian and Jew alike, the temple was a special place that had a special, a special honor a special importance, a special symbol in the life of Jewish culture. And the first Christians were coming out of that Jewish culture. And so to see that temple being desecrated and taken apart stone by stone would have been heart-wrenching. As I know for many of you, it was heart-wrenching to see our old church being taken down two by four by two by four over on Blanding Boulevard last summer. I never got to worship there, but it was heartbreaking even for me to watch that church being taken down. How much more a temple that had stood for thousands of years and had been the center and place of worship and the place where God himself had promised he would dwell. Even though it had become obsolete, it still would have been hard to watch it taken down. And that too was an abomination that causes desolation. But God had set it aside because it was no longer necessary. Because Jesus' sacrifice was the one perfect offering that forever can take away sin. And so as we gather for worship each Sunday, as we come and receive Jesus' body and blood in the Eucharist, we are being connected with that sacrifice over and over again. Jesus isn't being offered again, but we're connected with that one sacrifice that he made. And our sins are forgiven and we're restored each time we repent, each time we hold out our hands to receive communion. The final thing I think we can learn from this 
is that we can look at Jesus' words to his disciples as he was preparing them to face persecution. And we can take heed of them and take them to heart. Because things are changing around us. I talked last week about how Christendom has basically come to an end. For the better portion of Western history, from the year 300 onwards, we've lived in a place where Western culture was dominated by Christianity. And so it was assumed the default position was that you are a Christian and that you were the outlier if you weren't a Christian. But that's no longer the case. We've moved into a new time where secularism is the dominating force and where paganism is coming back and other religions are coming back. And we're at a time when Christianity is no longer the dominant place in our culture. And so if you think back to before Constantine, before Christendom started, what you'll find is three centuries that were full of persecution. Not that there hasn't been any persecution since that time. There have been little pockets of persecution, especially outside of the Western world and around the time of the Reformation. But on the whole, in the Western world, there has not been that kind of persecution for thousands of years. But we're now moving into a time, again, where Christianity is no longer the dominant position and where our morality and our values are going to come in conflict with the culture more and more. All you have to do is read the news to see a number of high-profile legal cases over the last few years that have to do with religious liberty and protecting our freedom as Christians. Thankfully, we've won many of those cases, but not all of them. That's a form of persecution. One person recently was caught up in a legal case for six years, putting his family and his business on hold, waiting for a final resolution from the courts. That's persecution. Or the pressure that medical professionals sometimes face to perform procedures or to prescribe drugs that, in their conscience, they disagree with. Or the church shootings that have happened in recent years. These, too, are forms of persecution. And I hate to say it, but these things are becoming more normal. We have to expect them more and more. And so the words of Jesus today and the words of other writers in the New Testament, and even the words of Daniel in the Old Testament, all point to how do we stay faithful in the midst of persecution? What is our response? In the book of Philippians, Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi, which is just beginning to experience persecution. And he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul urges the Philippians to stand firm in the day of trouble. He urges them to be still and to be strong and to not be frightened by anything by your opponents and that this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. And that's all still true today. Or listen to our words from Jesus this morning in the gospel. Just before the place where we read, he said this to his disciples, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. 
and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, listen to this, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. What we hear from this is that, first of all, we need to stand firm. But we don't stand firm in our own strength. We stand firm in the grace and the strength of the Lord. Because as Christians, we all have the Holy Spirit dwelling us. And as the body of Christ is the church, collectively we also have the body of Christ, or the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so when the day of trouble comes, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be anxious because we can trust that the Lord will give us the strength we need, that the Lord will give us the endurance that we need, and that the Lord will even give us the very words we are to say as we stand firm in that persecution, that we might be witnesses to the people who persecute us of our faith in Christ. Our kids uh, right now are learning about the Romans in their, in their school curriculum, and I had the, the ability to read to them just the other day from a book of stories of what life was like in those first centuries of the church. And the story I happened to read, and it was not an uncommon story because they tell the same, not exactly the same story, but different people same story in every chapter of this book. And it's the story of the persecution of these Christians in the first century. And we read about a woman who was a Christian and who was captured for her faith and was made to stand before the emperor in the middle of the gladiatorial stadium. And the emperor told her to deny Christ along with all the other people who were standing there with her. And some did. And they were saved from that persecution. But she stood firm. And she encouraged other people to stand firm too. And so she was hurt. She was whipped. She was beaten. She was imprisoned again. She was uh, eaten by wild beasts in the stadium. And through all of it, she endured to the end. So that her faith could be a testimony to all those who watched her in the stadium. Christians around the world face similar things every day. And we need to be mindful of them. We need to be praying for them. We need to be asking God to give them what they need, the strength, the endurance, the words to say. And we need to pray for ourselves, too. Not that we fear persecution. And please don't take fear away as the the message of the sermon. We have nothing to fear. We have no reason to be anxious. Even if these things do come, we have no reason to fear and no reason to be anxious because the Lord is with us and he will give us what we need and he will sustain us and strengthen us. And so we can trust that if the time comes for us, God will provide us with the strength to endure and the words to speak in that hour. And so I want to close with a few more words from St. Paul, this time from the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you because of his sacrifice that the temple is obsolete and that Jesus has offered himself as the one perfect sacrifice for our sin. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you would give us everything that we need 
to be faithful witnesses to you in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our families, among our friends, among our co-workers. We thank you for the faith that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen other believers throughout the world, and that as people question our faith in you, that you would help us to be strong, to stand firm, and to faithfully proclaim you among the nations. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.